Vasta Mai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective. Last week's programme was all about a man described as a timeless talent and a national treasure. This instalment is dedicated to another man who very much fits that description, who we lost this week. Renowned all over the world for his contributions to photography, to teaching, to social history, Chris Killip has died at the age of 74. Coming up on this episode... There's a quote of his doing the rounds today. I don't like smiley pictures. A smile is a defence mechanism. It says you can't have the real me, but here's my smile. You get closer to the real person when they stop smiling. I always admired the way he stuck steadfastly to what he was doing and cared very deeply about it and cared deeply about the communities he worked in. He wasn't seeking money ever. Um, he just sought to try and find a kind of truth that he could reveal through his pictures. And I think he did that. Shoji Yamagishi. Yamagishi. The great Japanese photo editor. Yeah. Apparently, he described you as possessed of an understanding of human character and singular photographic vision. <laughs> he went on to say also, this is as a young man, with a strong will bordering on the stubborn. Well, my students say, well, what do you have to have to make it in photography? Mm. And I say one word. I don't say talent. I don't say skill. I don't say brains. I say ambition. You've got to be ambitious for what you're doing and want to make it the best that you can make it. And that's what you need, I think. You know. This week, world-renowned Manx photographer Chris Killip passed away. Born and raised on the Isle of Man, Killip has been hailed as being among the influential generation of British documentary photographers of the 1970s. He lectured at Harvard University as a professor of visual and environmental studies from 1991 to 2017. After the news broke earlier this week, Manx Radio's Lewis Foster spoke with Chris's brother, Dermot Killip, who paid tribute. Certainly his legacy in the Isle of Man is the two books that he created, The Isle of Man and The Isle of Man Revisited, and also the archive that he donated to the Manx Museum of all of his Manx photographs, which can be accessed by anyone. And there's more photographs there than there are in the book. Internationally, I think his legacy will be of one of the photography's great. Uh, great, really. He um, uh, made a stunning contribution to photography, and he'd be remembered for that. There's a quote of his doing the rounds today. I don't like smiley pictures. A smile is a defence mechanism. It says you can't have the real me, but here's my smile. You get closer to the real person when they stop smiling. I wonder, is that the measure of Chris as a person, as someone who could connect with people on a real human level? Uh, yes, it is. Um, and the reason he, he used a plate camera to do his photographs is because you set a plate camera up and it's a cumbersome ob object. It sits between you and the person you're photographing and you can have a conversation with the person. You don't just snap them with, like you do with a normal camera. It's a very deliberative act. So the person is conscious of what's going on and you talk to them all the way through the process and the actual image you take is then contemplated. Um, it's not just a kind of one-off snap. Of course, in the modern age, um, some were saying online today um, that the type of photography that, that Chris engaged in perhaps wouldn't be possible in this modern age. Would, would you agree? Um, it would be difficult, certainly. Um, but there are photographers. You don't need to use a plate camera. Um, you, you just need to engage with the communities, with the people you're with. Um, and instead of just coming in, taking photographs and going, um, you have to kind of build relationships and trust with the person you're photographing and that's still possible today and it does show in the type of photography and the type of photographs that result from that 
Chris and yourself were born here on the Isle of Man. What did the island mean to him and yourselves growing up? Oh, it meant an enormous amount to us. Um, our parents were both Manx um, and were deeply fond of the Isle of Man. My father had a tremendous knowledge of the island and its history. Um, and they ran pubs. They ran three pubs during the course of their lifetime on the island and uh, were known amongst the community and loved people. Um, and the island always meant a lot to Chris. Um, he came back about once a year, if not more often, um, uh, and stayed in normally Peel. He wasn't born in Peel, um, but uh, uh, we spent our early childhood in Peel from the time he was about uh, ooh, six or seven onwards. Um, and he was a govig. He liked to think of himself as a govig. And when he came back to the island, he usually stayed in Peel and was happiest there, really. Many may be familiar with Chris through his work, but I wonder what he meant to you personally. Uh, Chris, um, when I was young, I idolised him. Uh, This was a a man who um, went off when he was young and entered the world of advertising um, and uh, photography and and, and then also photographed uh, famous people. He worked for Twiggy for a time, did photographs, um, for her and for Justin de Villeneuve. And I went down to London once when I was young and I met Twiggy. Gosh, what a glamorous thing to happen. Um, and then from then, I always admired the way he stuck steadfastly to what he was doing and cared very deeply about it and cared deeply about the communities he worked in. He wasn't seeking money ever. Um, he just sought to try and find a kind of truth that he could reveal through his pictures. And I think he did that. That was Dermot Killip speaking about his brother Chris earlier this week. Tributes poured in online. The Guardian described him as a hard-hitting photographer of Britain's working class. The British Culture Archive said he was outstanding and would leave an incredible legacy. Others said his imagery stands the test of time of a past Britain. The Tish Murtha Archive on Twitter hailed a lovely man and a wonderful photographer who had just been given the Dr Eric Salomon Award in acknowledgement of the outstanding achievements in photography gained through his 50-year career. And closer to home, fellow photographer Phil Neen said he was totally shocked and saddened by the news. I was lucky enough to attend a presentation by Chris Killip at the Manx Museum in May 2016. He reflected on his varied career and experience before signing copies of his new book. The talk also marked the opening day of a new exhibition Chris Killip's Isle of Man revisited. Sadly, I was not lucky or brave enough to speak to him. But somebody who was was the late Roger Watterson, presenter of Sunday Opinion for around a quarter of a century and my predecessor in this slot from midday until one on a Sunday. So in memory of Chris Killip, let's listen back to his conversation with Roger on Saturday the 7th of May 2016. Good afternoon, I'm Roger Watterson and this is Sunday Opinion. Friday evening, the Manx National Heritage launched an exhibition of photographs by the internationally acclaimed Manx photographer Chris Killip. It runs from now until the end of July, and admission is free. 
The museum holds a complete collection of the 250 Killip Manx photos and 50 of them are on display at this exhibition in Douglas. The first selection was published in 1980 under the title Isle of Man, a book about the Manx. A new book is out to coincide with the exhibition entitled The Isle of Man Revisited. Born in Douglas and a pupil at the Douglas High School for Boys, Chris Killip started his working life as a trainee chef and hotel manager, soon to move on to photography. After a period as a commercial photographer, he transferred his attentions to people and places, making his mark with his black and white and gritty images. A body of his work was from his photographs in the northeast of England, which were published in a book entitled In Flagrante. These images are now recognised amongst the most important visual records of living in the 1980s Britain. He's worked at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, since 1991, where he's a professor of visual and environmental studies, but he's never forgotten his Manx roots, as we shall discover in today's programme. He was on a flying visit to the island to be at the opening of his exhibition, and he's returning to the United States this morning. But yesterday he took some time out of his very tight schedule to talk about his work and life. We started our conversation by me asking him if he enjoyed the opening, and I suggested that he must have found the considerable number of people who've turned up to look at his pictures most rewarding. 1970 to 1973, which is now a long time ago, Mm -hmm. and it's very nice to see them here in the Isle of Man. It was a great pleasure last night to be at the opening of the show and to hear all those Manx people. <laughs> and somebody said they'd never been in a room with so many Manx voices before. <laughs> I don't know where they'd been. <laughs> how many of those photographs that we were looking at last night, how many of those were people that were at the exhibition? I don't really know because there were lots of people at the exhibition who were the children of the people ah. in the photographs and then nephews and nieces of the people in the photographs. So it got quite complicated. But they seemed to get so much pleasure from seeing their families on the wall in the exhibition. So it was very nice to be there. One of those I noticed immediately was one of our former colleagues, who's unfortunately no longer with us, John Kenyuk. Yes. I last saw John in St. John's at the Tinwell Cafe, at Nigel and Nicky's Cafe, and he came up to me to tell me how much he loved the Isle of Man book and how much it meant to him. Mm. And I was so looking forward to giving him the new Isle of Man revisited because I knew how much he would enjoy it. But unfortunately, that wasn't to be. But last night, I saw Mrs. Kenyuk, and it was very nice to talk to her, too. Mm. And she has the new book as well. Well, Let's go back to the beginning. You were born here in Douglas. I was born in Douglas. My father at that time was the landlord of the Highlander. So I grew up at the Highlander and left the Highlander when I was seven to go to live in Peel because my father then took on the White House. So from five to seven, I was at St. John's School in Miss Mary Wattleworth's class, Mm. in the infants' class. And then we we moved to Peel. And Douglas High School for Boys, I think. And then I went to Douglas High School for Boys on the train from Peel, the infamous train. (laughs) (laughs) We moved to Douglas to the Bowling Green Hotel when I was 15. But I always feel Peel made me, Peel formed me, and basically, I suppose, a Peel Govig. Right. When you were at the Douglas High School for Boys, I mean, you're a professor at a university now, too. Yeah. Did you have academic inclinations then? Absolutely not, and I was caned quite a lot because the teachers thought I was very an awkward boy because I would do things badly. They thought I wasn't stupid, but they thought I was 
difficult. Mm. What nobody realized at that time, I was dyslexic. Sick, huh? So I was often getting things wrong and not understanding why they were wrong. Mm. So I got the cane instead of <laughs> I'm living proof that the cane's no good. <laughs> <laughs> when you were at school, did you get any careers advice? Or what? Because you went into hotel management first, I think, didn't you? So uh, what made you do only that? by default. I left school with no idea. I was very anti-school. I had a very bad time, you know, not a happy time at school. And I didn't want anything to do with school. And I, in fact, didn't set foot into another school till I was 45. And the next school I stepped foot into was Harvard University. So it's quite a strange (laughs) story. And I have no qualifications. I've never taken an exam or anything like that. That's academic qualifications. Academic qualifications, yeah. So it is quite strange. It's only somebody with the sort of the largesse of Harvard would take me in. And they gave me a degree. I have an honorary degree from Harvard. But I don't have the qualifications to teach in a nursery school, to be quite honest. Uh, Well, uh, we'll maybe come to that later, (laughs) what you actually do at Harvard. But hotel manager to photography, what attracted you to that? Well, my father was a bit of a loss about what I should do when I left school. My mother wanted me to be a joiner, and I knew I didn't want to be a joiner. And my father suggested, why didn't I learn about hotel management? Well, the main hotel in Alabama at that time was the Castle Mona under Mr. Ronco, and it was run as a five-star hotel. It was a very good hotel, and I started there as a trainee hotel manager. I was 16, and I'd been there a week, and I was stepping in for the, in the porter's duties, and at 16 years old, I was the night porter. Can you imagine mm. now? And I was in charge of the hotel from midnight till 6 a.m., and that was my first three months at the hotel, and then I ended up in the kitchens. And I quite enjoyed learning to become a chef. It was quite a tough learning curve in there. After I'd been there a year, my father came to me and said he'd been talking to people. People in the brewery told him that the best thing to do in hotel management was to go to one of the colleges in Switzerland because they were the, the best colleges. My father told me he was prepared to pay for this. Now, that put me into a bit of a panic because although I liked my job, I knew I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. And I thought about it for quite a bit. And I went to him about two months later and said, Father, I'm going to become a photographer. And he said, but you haven't got a camera. I said, I know I haven't got a camera, but that's what I wanted to do. What I didn't explain to him was that I'd been looking through a magazine, the Paris Match magazine, to look at the cycling photographs from the Tour de France. I was in the Manx Road Club, the cycling club, with Reggie Quayle and Peter Callow, David Inston. And I came across this photograph on my race through the magazine by Henri Cartier-Bresson, a picture of a boy holding two bottles of wine. And I was absolutely mesmerized by this photograph. And I didn't really understand it. I liked it a lot, and I didn't know why I liked it. I didn't think it was a snapshot, but I didn't know why it wasn't a snapshot. And for me, it was a complete puzzle, an enigma. And I couldn't have talked about this photograph in the way I can talk about it now. Mm. I just was fascinated by it. And I decided this must be very interesting to learn how to do this. So that's why I said I wanted to become a photographer. So I became a beach photographer for the summer with kegs in Port Erin. Walking along the beach and being able to spot the people who are staying in Port Erin, not day trippers, but people who are staying there Mm. for the week's holiday, and take their photographs. And you didn't have to ask their consent. And then in the morning when they were getting up and after breakfast, people would promenade up and down the top promenade in Port Erin, in front of the boarding house, in front of the Bellevue Hotel and those hotels. And you'd photograph them there. And then you'd photograph them in the evening when the hotel did their dances. All the hotels had bands and dancers in those days. Mm. And Port Erin was quite a thriving family holiday venue. And you'd get these pictures off on the last bus to Douglas, at the 11 o'clock bus. They would be processed then at Kegs and come back the next day, and they'd go in the shop window. Kegs had a shop at the top promenade in Port Erin, 
and people would then see themselves in the window. They'd come up to have a look, and they'd buy those pictures. I got half a crown in the pound, two and sixpence in the pound, yeah. and I saved my money. That's 12 and a half P yeah, today, uh, yeah, Yes, <laughs> and I left for London, and I think I had £400 in my pocket, and I went to London to get a job. So you just did it? You just, just upsticked and went? I, I upsticked and went, and I didn't mm. know anybody in London. And I was going to work for an advertising photographer. When I got to London, I went to the library. And it took me at least a week to work out who I thought were the best 50 photographers in London. And I had it, number one was a man called David Bailey. He was the most famous photographer at that time, fashion photographer. And I don't know who was number 50, but I worked out who was 50. And then my nerves failed, and I went and knocked on the door of the 50th photographer to ask for a job, not the number one, because I felt I didn't know anything. And I was running out of money, and I knocked on the door of Adrian Flowers, his studio in Tite Street in Chelsea, and this was the 46th photographer, and I was getting low on funds. And this girl answered the door, and I was talking to her, she said, where are you from? I said, the Isle of Man. She said, I thought so, come in. And it turned out this girl, Val Syrett, her boyfriend at college, was Howard Gray, who was the son uh-huh. of Joe's Bar. And she'd been to the Isle of Man, and that's how she recognised it, and she liked the Isle of Man. So she started to talk to me, and she took a shine to me. And she said, oh, Adrian's out, come back tonight. So I came back in the evening, and she'd been talking to him, and she sort of persuaded him to hire me as another assistant. He had three assistants. So I was assistant number four. I think they must have taken pity on me. And I started on the Monday, and I remember being terrified by the music he was playing. I sort of didn't know much about music, and he was playing Art Tatum. I can remember this morning quickly. There were 16 variations on Over the Rainbow. I think I started to shake. I was so anxious about like how much I didn't know. But as the week went on, I gained in confidence. At the end of the week, Adrian said to me, you know about food, you worked in a hotel. I've got some friends who got married in, in Israel, but they've got no pictures, and they're coming tonight, and I'm going to photograph them. Go out and organize some food and some canopies and champagne. I said, OK. So I went off and got the champagne and got the food organized. At 6 o'clock, the door burst open, and then came this couple. And they were already drunk on love, I would say. They were so happy. And it was Jacqueline Dupre and Daniel Barenboom. And so I was running around with the champagne, and they were laughing. And I, was, and I thought at the end of the day, oh, isn't life great? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how lucky I was mm-hmm. to get a job with this man, as opposed to anybody else, because he was generous and he led an interesting life. And he ran a studio as a big school, really. Howard Gray, you mentioned, of course. Howard went on to leave here again, another product of the Douglas High School for Boys. Yeah. And he became a very successful commercial photographer yeah. at this stage. Yeah. He's still about. He's just recently retired. Yeah. He's not doing yeah. very much now. Yeah. But his, you're right about Alf Gray, but that was his father. Yeah. Because they had this sort of mock bar in Strand Street know, called Joe's yeah, Bar, which yeah. thousands of visitors used to have their photographs well, taken Well, locals as well. I photographed me on a lion in Joe's Bar, <laughs> and a photograph of my father with all the waiters from the Bowling Green in sombrero hats. It must have been early on one summer night, they all went down to Strand Street and had their picture taken in Joe's, <laughs> Joe's <laughs> Bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you were, earning a living by the sound of it, and, and uh, with a possibly job and career in front of you as a commercial photographer and then you switched. Yeah, I was a very successful freelance assistant. I'd worked for many photographers in the space of two years. And I was in New York in the Museum of Modern Art. I saw my first exhibition of photography and it was an amazing thing for me. I had never seen an exhibition of photographs before. And I realized, looking at the permanent collection in the museum, that I could do photography for its own sake. I didn't have to be a fashion photographer, an advertising photographer, a photojournalist. I could just do it. And this was a great moment until I thought, do what? So I sat down that evening and thought about it, and I thought, well, I think I should go back to the Isle of Man. 
the Isle of Man in 1969 was trying to promote itself as a tax haven. And I knew the implications of this, that the Isle of Man would change. And I also, I knew and loved the Isle of Man. My father instilled in me quite a lot of knowledge about the Isle of Man. And so I thought I should start there and photograph there because I was going to make things to my advantage. I was an, an insider in the Isle of Man and Manx. Mm-hmm. And I knew people. My father was a well-known figure. So I rang my father and asked, could I come home and work in the pub at night? Because I wanted to photograph there in the daytime. And would he pay me? And he said yes. And so I came back to the Isle of Man and started to photograph. The first pictures that I did, I actually started off doing the three remaining water mills in the Isle of Man. So I was at the, photographing the Golden Meadow Mill in Castletown, Bernie Mulcrane at Glenmore, and Mr. Brew at the Keller Mill. And they were the three remaining public flour mills with water wheels. And that got me going. It's difficult often in photography to get going, but if you have a specific subject to go for, like the water mills, that got me going. And then it became a bigger thing after that. Of course, when you do something like that, I noticed that you were using quite large format film as well, 4x5 film. It's expensive stuff. Yeah, well, I did it in 69. I photographed on a 35mm, and I took the pictures back to London to show them to a well-known picture editor called Bill Jay. And he told me I was crazy. I was using a 35mm camera on a tripod, which was stupid. Why don't you just use a plate camera? I was a bit annoyed with him because I, <laughs> I didn't want to use a plate camera. But that night I realized he was probably saying the truth. So I hired a plate camera, came back to the Isle of Man, and the first picture I took with it was of, at the Golden Me- Meadow Mill of the miller there. And it was taking the picture, and I realized he's right. This mm. is correct for me. Mm. This is what I need to use. And it was sort of a, a bit of a leaden heart because it's not easy carrying around a 4 by 5 play mm-hmm. camera and the cost of the film and things like that. But that's what I decided was the correct way to do this. And I carried on. And I used to develop the film in the evening in my mother's linen cupboard, in fact. And then the next day I'd look at the film that I'd made the day before and select a negative to take to London to print. I had very little money, so I didn't make prints in the Isle of Man. I didn't have a darkroom here. And I would go to my friend Hiroshi Yoda's dark room in London and with a sleeping bag and do as many prints as I could in a day and then fall asleep on the floor and get up and carry on. So I was like not trying to, to inconvenience him too much. And that's how things happened. But the exhibition we were looking at last night, the photographs taken from that particular time, were they? From, from that photograph we were just talking about now, where you went to London to process them. Yes, that's correct. That's but then I did the Isle of Man book and the Isle of Man book took quite a while to come out. In 1972, I went back to New York, and the first gallery of photography in New York was called the Whitkin Gallery, run by a man mm-hmm. called Lee Whitkin. And he really liked my pictures, and he said, you want to do a portfolio of these? I said, of course, yes, I'd love to. And so he told me how much he would pay me to do this, and that was great. And then we agreed all this, and he gave me a check. So I came back to the Isle of Man with this check, and I, was, I had money to carry on. And I was working away that winter, and about four months later, a letter came from him. He said, I've been thinking about you. Here's the other half of the money, because you must be running out by now. And the strange thing is I'd never signed anything, no contract between us. And now I had all the money, and he had no photographs. A great deal of trust in that. Very much so. Then (laughs) then I went back to New York with the pictures, and we worked out which ones should be in the portfolio, and it went forward from there. From the Isle of Man? Yeah. The Isle of Man to the northeast of England, northeast of England in the period of time that you went there, that... In the middle of the Thatcher years, and no, I went Callaghan years before it was. That oh case? yeah, I went in 1975 when Harold Wilson was Wilson, prime, minister, right. prime minister. Mm. I was on a, a fellowship with Northern Arts and the Gas Board. 
I had to work 20 hours a week for the gas board and the rest of my time was free and I was paid enough money from this to do my own work. So it was an amazing opportunity for me. So I diligently photographed the gas board. I actually photographed the installation of a, of a gas pipeline which went from Gretna Green to Bishop Auckland. And it took two years for this thing to be dug, laid in, and resurfaced. Mm. And so it completed the time that I was there. And then I just worked very hard on my northeast photographs. Yes. Now, how did you go about finding people? Over here, you knew the families, you knew the background, perhaps. But over there, you would no, be a stranger was, to them. Yes, but it was by traveling around the region and seeing things that you thought were really interesting and then trying to sort of photograph them. Sometimes it was very difficult. Like the, the fishing village of Skin and Grove is a place which is quite hostile to strangers. They don't like outsiders. It took quite a while for me to be accepted there and mm. to photograph them. But it did happen. I did. I was accepted there. Did, did you have to live there? How did you just visit I, I was <laughs> live there. <laughs> it's a good... I paid a man who had the keys to a holiday apartment there yeah. a pint a night for every night I stayed there. I bought him a pint <laughs> <laughs> in the bar for each night I stayed there. If they didn't like visitors, didn't they question your presence, particularly with a camera? They did at the beginning, but some of the young guys thought I was all right, and that leveled the way. Uh, there's a young guy who actually drowned later, Colezzo, and he was my sort of... Uh, Backer in that sense. He's old oh, even alone. He's okay. Don't worry about it. He's fine. So you developed yeah. a sort of personal relationship with yourself. Yes, I, I, over time, my pictures always take, I'm almost photographing in a single place for quite a great deal of time. Mm. I also show people pictures too. So I go and I photograph and then I come back and show people what I'm doing. What if they say, oh no? People don't really say, oh no. Sometimes some people don't want to be in your photographs and that's fine. I don't put them in my photographs. I'm very visible with a plate camera. It's a big thing. So people have an opportunity either to turn away or to walk away. You still use a plate camera? Yeah, 4 by 5 camera. And I've learned, in the Isle of Man it was always on a tripod, but I learned to use it in my holding it in my hand. And I also started to use a 6 by 7 camera, which is a roll film camera. And so I had more flexibility and I was more flexible mm-hmm. than I was on the Isle of Man. Now, in these photographs, the Skidding Grove ones in particular, I was looking at them, nobody smiles. Well, sometimes there's not much to smile about. Mm-hmm. And also fishing is quite, there's quite a lot of concentration and effort mm-hmm. going on. And, you know, in some of the pictures people are smiling, some of the kids are smiling in some of the pictures. But it's sort of, I don't know, I mean, I don't actually like smiling pictures, this is the other, other truth. A smile is a way to deflect somebody in photography. It's like, you can't have me, have my smile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like the, the standard response, but it actually, it's a bit of a facade, it's like mm. a mask. How many of those photographs that we see were taken, as it were, as photo reportage, taken just as it happens, and how many were composed? They're all composed, in a sense, by me and where I'm standing and with my eye and trying to discern what is an interesting composition. But I've never posed anybody Mm. ever. I've never said, you stand here and you stand there. I work differently. It's me that moves. They stay there. I'm trying to work out how to make a better picture. Mm. And so if the picture fails, it's, it's entirely my doing. So this north of east of England experience, which went on, as you say, for quite a number of years. Fifteen years, yeah. You were operating in a very different society there that was going through a series of changes as shipyards and steelworks and all these things closed down and tremendous poverty. At the time of photographing, I didn't know they were going to close down and I didn't know they were going to close down so quickly. I didn't know that all these things were going to come to an end. I thought they were the heavy industry and the industries of the area that seemed to be maybe in, in the latter stages, but I didn't know that it was all going to come to an end in the way that it did.
Why are most of these photographs in black and white? Is that just because the materials of the time, or you prefer you doing it that It way? was actually the materials and, uh, of the time. People, when I started off in 1970, mm. didn't photograph in colour, and I just stuck with it. You know, I stuck with this. Also, it's a practical thing. I could develop the pictures and print them myself. Mm. So, there's a, so the economics does come into this. Well, know. all of this time that you spent in the Northeast, uh, Robert Ayers described you as, or your photographic book, the Inflagranti book, as the greatest photographic books ever published, which is very kind of him. But he also went on to say that they are a dark, pessimistic journey. With hindsight, that's probably the correct view, isn't it, considering <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> but I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I didn't have any clairvoyancy here. Yeah. I didn't know that the miners' strike was going to happen. I didn't know that all the steelworks would go, all the coal mines would go, all the shipbuilding would go. It was there when I was photographing, mm. and I was trying to photograph it as much as I could. When you mm. did the Isle of Man collection, was there any political undercurrent there at that time, or were you just looking for people and visions? Uh, well, the Isle of Man book is not about the Isle of Man. It's much more a book about the Manx. So mm. in the book, there's no, you know, there's no Tesco's, there's no Strand Street, there's no mm. casino, and there's no motorbikes. So the p things that people popularly associate with the Isle of Man are not present. But there is, as we both know in the Isle of Man, another Isle of Man, which is the Manx Isle of Man. Mm. It's like, I'd call it the indigenous Isle of Man. Mm. And that's what I was very interested in. And I could gain access to this. When I asked people, can I take your photograph? People would say to me, well, who's your mother and who's your father? Oh, and then they that's would it. go, now, who's your, who's your grandmother on your mother's side? <laughs> and who's your grandmother on your father's side? <laughs> and this would take quite a while. And people would ponder on this. And then they'd agree to photograph. And at the time, I thought, well, do they think they know me when they're saying this? Well, yeah. well in fact, I do think they did know more than I realised because <laughs> they knew these people, my grandparents and both. And I don't know, I never knew my grandparents. Well, I've had experiences like yeah. this where you go going yeah. to do something and I, don't, I yeah. haven't had quite those questions, but I've had people yeah. say to me, which Watterson are you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is the same question. Yeah, really. yeah. <laughs> and of course, my mother was from the Kronk of Quirks, yeah. which was a big help because they're yeah. a tribe of people. Oh, you'd be all right then. <laughs> and my grandfather was the miller in Laxey, which right. is also held. You know. This manxness that you're talking about, yeah. it, it's something which is felt more than actually described, isn't it? Yes, it's felt more than it's, it's described, and it's difficult to put a finger on it, what is Manxness. But my father always used to regard the English as a necessary evil. Do I need to say more on this? <laughs> In the visits, and you come back quite regularly, yeah. do you think it, the Manxness that you are talking about from all this time past, do you think it's still here? Yes, but I've got to say, I've never been in the casino. <laughs> mm. you know, I don't go to Tesco's. I come to the Isle of Man, and I go to Peel. And then I go and see my cousin Stanley in Coolsloe Farm. Then I go to Niarbel. I live in, in an Isle of Man that is not accessible to a stranger, but is accessible to me because I come from here. I keep going back to that. You know, I see Peel as the last stronghold. <laughs> <laughs> but in the UK, of course, the, the whole society is different, and the politics are very different as well yeah. in, in the way people react to things too. Yeah. Was your work, would you say it was artistic, to get the picture, or were you trying to document political and social issues? Well, frankly, in the Isle of Man there are no political parties because everybody's a conservative. Mm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's very little opposition mm. to the conservatism that, that, that has reigned in the Isle of Man for the last 50 years. Yeah. 
I mean, I went to school with Bernard Moffat, and I'm a great supporter of Bernard Moffat. Right. And I think he was, he's was he been a stalwart for working people in the Isle of Man. I'm in great admiration of all that Bernard's done and tried to do. Yes, but coming back and, to that northeastern business more than the Isle yeah, of Man one, yeah. I mean, there were clearly very political and social issues rampant at the time. Inevitably, in that part of inevitably. And when, I mean, I was very shocked when a journalist asked me, which side was I on during the miners' strike? Yeah. I nearly fainted. I thought that they thought I could be on, on the other side side other than the miners. So would you say that the way you, when you say you compose a photograph, you don't stage a photograph, but you go around till you get it right in, the, yeah, in, yeah, in your yeah. mind's eye, would you say that somewhere in, when you're doing that, you're trying to capture perhaps your own political awareness as well? No, you to say no, something no. No, what I'm trying to do is make a very good photograph. Right. And what I've got to do is spend time for people that people will trust me mm. when I'm moving backwards and forwards in front of them, that I'm trying to do something that's worthwhile. Now, I don't explain that to people, but I think people see me trying to do this day in and day out, and they get that that's um, some sort of seriousness about this, and also they develop some trust about this too. And also, I'm visible, very visible, and I'm going to come back. It's not like I'm going to take a picture and disappear. Mm. I come back the next day and the next day and the next day. That makes a very big difference in terms of forming a relationship based on trust. In those sort of bleak and fairly unhappy times in the northeast, did you find that there was a, a residual happiness with the people? I come back to this not smiling, but was there a humour there? Was there a, Yes, of course. A, a, yeah, know, was yeah, there a pleasantness yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Even during the miners' strike, uh, you know, there, were, there was lots of humour. There was lots of hardship. And right. also, like, when I worked taking pictures of people who get cold from the sea, that was a pretty tough place. Mm. It was like a caravan site on a cliff on the North Sea, mm-hmm. and the wind blew and it was cold and wet. But there was a great deal of sort of rivalry between people, but there's also a great, a great deal of friendship and closeness. It was a sort of, really, it was them against the world. You seem to immerse yourself into the lives of others. Did that bring to you a desire in some way ever to take part in what was going on, to try and help? No, my job was to photograph. Just that's it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I did. I've been back to where the Seacold camp was, and it's been landscaped. Mm. And it looks like a golf course. And then you look where the power station was, and it's been demolished. And the coal mine's been demolished. So when you go, it looks like there was nothing ever there. But I have a book of these photographs that says, yes, this did happen. This existed. And so my, my work is evidential. It's like, so these people in this time is not forgotten. It's there in this book. It existed. It's time now for a short commercial break, and we'll be back with more from Chris Killip in just a few minutes. The Nation Station. Radio. The internationally acclaimed Manx photographer Chris Killip is our guest this week on Sunday Opinion. I caught up with him on Saturday during his flying visit to be at an exhibition of his work which had just opened at the Manx Museum. What's the line between photojournalism art in making a photograph and historic recording then because the uh, historic I recording know, at the fo- time fo- wouldn't be part of it photojournalism means you're working for somebody and have to bring back a product mm. I've never worked for anybody, I've never worked for a magazine, I've never worked for paper right. I've never done it for somebody else I've only mm. done photo- photography mm. for myself mm. and that's an enormous difference so I could go somewhere and not get a photograph I could spend all day there and it would be a dead loss I would think in many ways but if I was a photojournalist I'd have to bring back something and that's what most photojournalists do. They've got a deadline and they've got to bring back a product. I didn't have to bring back anything. Right. But by sometimes when I thought I'd failed and not making a f- good photograph in a day, I hadn't failed. I'd just spent more time with the people I was photographing. 
and that was a big help. But we see sometimes work that we do in a way at a time, and then you look at it, as indeed you must have done with these photographs in the Manx exhibition here, and you see something in them that you, in your own work, that you didn't see at the time. Oh, yeah, and for me, very true. Because I didn't make prints of my work from the Elder Man, I made big mistakes about the the images I picked, Mm. the negatives that I decided to use. And so I was very happy to get an opportunity to come back and make another book about the Isle of Man. It happened because I did a retrospective exhibition, a big one in Germany, at the Folkwang Museum in Essen. And to preparing for the retrospective, I went back to look at my archive. And for the first time, I went back to look at the Isle of Man pictures since I'd published the book. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe sometimes the pictures I'd missed out. And I was so happy to put these pictures back into the new book. And sometimes the reasons were sort of like stupid reasons. Um, There's a very beautiful picture of Ned Christian and his family. And I remember at the time I liked the picture, but I thought, I can't put that in a book because it looks like a picture they took themselves. Now when I look at it, that's the reason I want to put it in. (laughs) So many you didn't publish, not just of these, but of your other collections too, up to now. So what factors at that time, you've just mentioned some, but contributed to whether you would publish or not? It's the quality of the work. And for me, it's can I make a book of this work I'm a very great believer in the photographic book as a way of presenting work and it's also got a terrific I like the narrative possibility of a book the way a book has a beginning a middle and an end and also the way you can use text Mm -hmm. and so the, the decisions would be made about which photographs to use in order to make a book but what's really nice for me about the Isle of Man collection I thought about that differently I looked back at this work and actually made a selection of 250 pictures, which I then talked to the museum about, that I had this archive in the Isle of Man. I was quite keen that it was housed in the Isle of Man. Mm. And for a very reasonable price, I just covered my costs to make these prints and get it back to the Isle of Man because I felt that's where it belonged. I'm very glad the pictures are here. Um, this exhibition, which is running at the moment... Is based on that. Based, yeah. But it's obviously not the full 250. No, there's 50 pictures in the exhibition, and there's another 200 that are now in the archive in the Isle of Man. Mm-hmm. And I also made the museum three books. I made it online, so all the pictures are in the three books, so somebody could come and look through the mm-hmm. books without touching the pictures to see what the archive consisted of. So it gave me an enormous amount of pleasure to do this. Now, the yeah. photographs, when we look at them, especially as they're in black and white, although yeah. the images are extremely crisp and clear when yeah. you look at yeah. them, nevertheless, they have a sort of grittiness to them, this black and white imagery that we see. Is there a market, you think, for that type of photograph today? I'm well, not, uh, not historic, uh, current. Well, people are interested in black and white photography, mm-hmm. and in the way photographs now are discerned in the art market are the difference between a vintage print and a modern print. A vintage print is a print made at the time that the photograph was made, Mm -hmm. and a modern print is a print that's made now. Also, there's another thing now about digital prints. Mm -hmm. So there are three categories of prints in existence now. The only digital set of prints I've ever made are the prints for the Isle of Man that are now in the Manx Museum. I won't and don't make digital prints of my other work. So the other prints that exist in my other work are either vintage or modern prints, but all the prints are made by me. That made by traditional exposure By traditional darkroom methods, yeah, yeah, printed in the darkroom. The negatives, if we go back all this time, how do they stand the test of time? Do they deteriorate in any way? No, not at all, no, no. No. 
They stand the test of time. Fine. Better than me. <laughs> I have seen, I've, been, I've seen negatives, especially these that are rolled up in 35mm film with a rubber band around them. Yeah, yeah. They don't seem to carry time too well. No, but my, my 5.4s are in, in glassine envelopes and they're doing fine. Yeah. Yes. I so, wish I was doing as well. So you, <laughs> these that are at the museum here, then you would have scanned, scanned the ne- them. Scanned the negative and, yeah, made, yes, the print, and yeah. made the print. Yeah. Did Photoshop come into it anyway? Not really, no. It only, the Photoshop only comes in to, uh, when there was dust on the negative and that. And mm-hmm. It's like easily spotting and stuff like that. So yes. There's no alter- Photoshop alteration in the picture. There was no restoration there. No, the they end. didn't need any restoration. It was just spotting. During all this passage of work... Was there an influence, other influences on you, other than what you were doing, other, other artists, other photographers? Yeah. Other the, people? The, the Isle of Man work is very influenced by the great American photographer, Paul Strand, mm. who photographed in the Hebrides, and that was a work that influenced me and influenced the Isle of Man work. But then when I'd finished the Isle of Man, I very much wanted to move away from that and change my photography. I did that. It took some time. But I did that and sort of changed my whole style of photography just through a process of working. Now, you had a contract or you had a project, whatever way you want to call it, with Pirelli at one time. And that must have been very different to photographing people in the other locations. Yeah, and it was quite strange. I was in the darkroom and I got a call from someone in London saying, I'm from Pirelli. Would you like to photograph our factory? And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, we'd like to commission you to photograph our factory. I said, really? Now, this was interesting to me because I could never get permission to enter any factory because I didn't come from any official organization. Mm. And if I showed people my photographs, they would then refuse me entry to photographs because they didn't like my photographs and were worried about what I might do in their factory. Mm. And it turned out that the managing director of Pirelli had seen an exhibition of my work at the Victorian Albert Museum a year before, had thought about it and talked to the board about it, and had taken this time for them to sort of decide they might want to do something. So I went to see them in London, and I was... a very amusing conversation. I said, what do you want from me? They said, they'd like a set of photographs that I would be proud to exhibit. I said, really? I said, how many do you want? They said, oh, that's up to you. And I said, well, how long have I got? Well, I said, if you take a day or a year, that's your problem. We want you to be happy with the pictures, so you have to decide all these things. And I said, I want 24-hour access. And I said, oh, no problem. And then they said to me, you've got to give us a price for this, what you're going to do, and it's unalterable. You can't come back for more money because we've got to ask the board for approval and it's a one-off. Do you understand? No more money to make, and Scott, you've got to be able to make an exhibition of photographs from it. So I thought about this and I said, yeah, okay. He said, I was just going out the door and the man said to me, oh, by the way, Pirelli is not a poor company. So I went home and talked about this. <laughs> and then I rang him in the morning and I said, I can't remember what the price was. I told him the price. He said, will you be at this number in three hours? I said, yes. He said, I'll ring you then and let you know whether it's on or not. And three hours later, the phone went and he said, yes, you've got the job. I said, oh, marvelous. I said, I'm going back to Newcastle now, but I could call by the factory. He said, well, very good. What time will you be there? I said, I'll be there by two o'clock. He said, well, there'll be somebody to meet you. So I got there at two and I went in and I can remember driving up the motorway singing. I'm in the money, I'm in the money. I had debt, and I'd never had anything with this much money involved. I was so happy, and I got to the factory, and people were there to meet me. And we went in, and they opened the door to the factory, and there's rubber smells. Yes. And I was walking along, I said, why are the windows blocked out? They said, oh, daylight and rubber at this stage don't mix. We've got to have reduced the amount of light. I said, oh, really? And then I was looking at these machines, and I'd forgotten that rubber was black. This sounds a strange thing, but it hadn't entered my head. And men were in dark grey uniforms, and there was no light. And I started to feel a little bit faint. And they were explaining all the process to me, and I was getting quite queasy. 
Because I was thinking, this is the photographer's nightmare. I said, is there a bathroom near here? And I, they said, oh, yes, there's one. Go to over there. So I went in the bathroom, and I actually vomited into the toilet. Oh, dear. And I was so... Sh- I was shaking, and I came back in, and I went you on this tour. You couldn't lighting equipment right And I, I went deaf. I went deaf. <laughs> there were plenty of these things. And I got in the car, and I, was, I started to drive home, and I started to cry. I thought, why are you so stupid? If Ed, you'd gone in to see this, you'd have said no. Mm. So I drove back to Newcastle with a very heavy heart that I just got myself into so much trouble here. And I went back and started photographing on the Monday. And for some reason, and I don't know why, I decided I was not going to light this. Now, this is complete stupidity because the place was very dark. Mm. But I wanted to use available. I'd never lit, lit anything in my photography. And I spent six weeks photographing there terribly badly. And I lost a lot of weight. It was a very hot summer. And I'd lost about 20 pounds, and one day the phone went, and I was called into the main office, and there was a call from London from the PR manager. I've just had a lunch with Mark Harworth Booth from the V&A, and, he, and he's going to exhibit your photographs in December. Isn't that wonderful? And I said, oh, yes, that's wonderful. And I knew I didn't have anything, anything worthwhile. And I went back to Newcastle, got a friend to help me, a photographer, and I came back and I lit it. I worked like crazy because now I was well, on... With lights or flash? With lights. There could be no wires anywhere. Mm. And so the lights were controlled by radio communication mm. or infrared. So once, in some yeah, parts right. of the factory, one would work better than the other. And often there's three or four lights in the picture. But I could come up to somebody photographing and be inches away from their face and talk about the soccer game last night and talk about all sorts of things. And I was just there all the time, so I knew everybody. Mm. And it was three shifts, and I could ask, which shift is Roy on? Because he had a very good face. So you I, got your pictures then? Yeah, but I, and I would come and just... I worked like crazy. Mm. And I thought my first week was a complete waste of time and I was an idiot. But in fact, I got to know everything and the people and the place mm. and the process during that time. It was, with hindsight, it was a learning curve. It seems such a quantum leap from that sort of work to becoming an academic. Well, <laughs> well Harvard rang me completely out of the blue. I was in the document in Newcastle in 1991, and the phone went, and this man said, I'm Alfred Gazzetti, chairman of the visual department at Harvard University. Have you ever thought about teaching? And I thought, I thought it was a friend playing a joke on me. I said, no. And he said, well, have you ever thought about being in America? I said, no. And he was saying, and I said, listen, Mr. Gazzetti, um, could you call me back tomorrow at this time? I'm just standing here in the darkroom. It's not a very good moment. If you ring tomorrow, I'll be out of the darkroom. And I put the phone down. What was that about? So I rang Mark Hayward Booth at the V&A and said, do you know anything about this? Oh, yes. They rang a week ago and talked to people an hour about you. I said, really? Oh, yes, they quizzed me about you. I, said, I bet they've rung Susan Kismarek at the Museum of Modern Art in New York because she knows you. So I rang Sue. Oh, yes. So I thought, this is interesting. They've been doing like a lot of homework on me. So when he rang up the next day, I said, listen, I I can't answer any of this. Should I come out to see you? Because I think that would be the best thing. He said, yes. Can you come on Monday? I said, yes, certainly. This was a Wednesday or Thursday. This is in Boston. This is in Newcastle. And I flew to Boston. (laughs) And I stayed for a week. Mm. And it was very interesting. I sat in on classes and I, I enjoyed it. And it was obviously a great school. At the end of the week, the chairman said, would I like to have lunch? I said, certainly. Then I went into a room, and there were 12 other people sitting there. Oh, this is the interview. So I was sitting there, and I said to him, Milos Jansko is teaching here, the great Hungarian director, but I know he doesn't speak English. Isn't that a problem? And he said, no, it's not a problem. Wait a minute. I said, if someone doesn't speak English, it must be a problem. He said, no, Chris, it's not a problem. And I then said in a louder voice, it has to be a problem. <laughs> and I remember going red when everybody's knives and forks went on the table and they all stared at me. <laughs> and I said, we got a translator. <laughs> and I was, oh, 
And I felt so stupid mm-hmm. and embarrassed. Mm-hmm. But also, this is interesting. They wanted him, so they solved it. So it wasn't a yes, problem. Yes, yes. I thought, I've been in England too long. This is interesting. I'm going to come here. So I agreed to go for a year, and that was 25 years So ago. this visual and environmental studies, the visual yeah. I can understand, but the environmental studies... The environmental is a disguised term for architecture you know, ah. and the built environment. You know. okay. It should be, be called, really, the, the visual studies department to cover all the same so what the art st- department. What do the students come to learn? Well, Harvard has a lot of money, and it is the leading academic institution in America. It is a very interesting place because of the number of applicants. They get 45,000 qualified applicants for 1,500 places, and they're very good at picking the students that they admit. They're really good there's at this. a lot this, of them. Yeah. But there's only 1,500 in any year. There's only 6,000 yeah, undergraduate. That's the intake, is it? The intake, 6,000 total students right. in the undergraduate body. Northeastern University, which you've never heard of in Boston, has 14,000 undergraduates. Right. So this school is very selective. And what's interesting is... The less money you have, the better it is for you. You will leave Harvard with no debt. Harvard will just pick up the bill. It's called blind admission. The difficulty is getting in. Only when you're in do they turn the papers over to see you. When the students have been through your course, what do they leave to do? I have students working for the president. I have students working for the Washington Post. I have students in Goldman Sachs. I have students in every institute of banking of all these funny companies like McKinsey mm-hmm. and all these people so, so right that, the that, that, that advise. You know. mm-hmm. I have students that are working in the prison system. <laughs> I have students doing all sorts of things. You know. right. Harvard is very interested in, in getting students in who they think are going to be movers and shakers. Right. And living in Boston? I live in Cambridge. I live four minutes away from but Harvard right University. Right at the university? Right at the university. So people yes. say to me, how do I live in America? And I say it's very nice. I want to say I don't live in America. I live in the ivory tower. I live in, you know, within right. Harvard. Really. But you have an American wife. I have an American wife. And ironically, or interestingly, my son, who's very much brought up in London married an American woman, and he now lives in Brooklyn, New York. And I have two granddaughters now in Brooklyn, New York. So my life has sort of, like, emigrated completely to America. What does she make of this Manxness? She loves coming to the Isle of Man because <laughs> she has friends here, and she loves the Isle of Man, you know. Mm. And she's from Nebraska, so she'd never seen the sea as a child. She loves Nyarbal. <laughs> we were there yesterday. So <laughs> what's in the future? Have you new projects in line? Um, my future is I'm at the end of my teaching life. Now I'm now teaching part-time. I will retire finally in the end of December 2017. In America or the Isle of Man? I will remain in America. I've been there too long to come back, I feel. Yes. Also now with my son and my grandchildren be, being in New York. And also coming for me, coming to England, it's like flying to L.A. It's just another night flight, you know. It's the yes. same distance, yes. the same cost. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for joining us today. And let me Pleasure. finish off by, I don't know if you've heard of this gentleman. I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly. But Shoju Yamagashi. Shoji Yamagishi. Yamagishi. The great Japanese photo editor. Yeah. Apparently, he described you as possessed of an understanding of human character and singular photographic vision. <laughs> he went on to say also, this is as a young man, with a strong will bordering on the stubborn. Well, my students say, well, what do you have to have to make it in photography? Mm-hmm. And I say one word. I don't say talent. I don't say skill. I don't say brains. I say ambition. You've got to be ambitious for what you're doing and want to make it the best that you can make it. And that's what you need, I think. You know. Chris Kilp, thank you for being our guest on Sunday Opinion today. My pleasure. The Manx photographer Chris Killip was our guest this week on Sunday Opinion. He was here to attend an exhibition of his pictures, which opened on Friday evening with a review, and then Saturday to the public at the Manx Museum. 
and during his visit he joined me at Manx Radio to talk about his life and his work. The Manx National Heritage now has 250 of these photographs and 50 of them are on display at this exhibition in Douglas which finishes on the 30th of July. The admission is free. Our producer was Catherine Nicholl and I'm Roger Watterson. That was Roger Watterson's Sunday Opinion programme from Sunday the 8th of May 2016, speaking to Chris Killip, another timeless talent and another national treasure who we lost this week. Thanks for listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Guru and goodbye. Take care.